Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be focusing our attention on verses 10 to 16 this morning. As you turn there, let me pray for us. Father, as we just sang, Christ is mine forevermore. He is our treasure. We pray that that would be more true of us today. That we would treasure him more than we did yesterday. And that tomorrow we would treasure him more than we did today. Lord, help us to behold wonderful things in your word this morning. And may we leave here with a greater desire to know Christ and to pursue him with our whole heart, mind, and soul. And I pray this in his name. Amen. So two weeks ago, we looked at verses 3 through 9. Basically, Paul is contrasting his former way of thinking to his new way of thinking in light of these false teachers, these Judaizers who are telling the believers in Philippi that they need not only believe, but they also must be circumcised in order to be made right with God. And so Paul basically responds to them by saying, listen, I have way more confidence in the flesh than all of you. And he lists all of his reasons for that, his, his heritage, but also his personal achievements. He says, I have way more confidence in self. But Paul then encountered Christ and everything drastically changed in his life. His whole way of thinking changed. And what you see in Paul is that he abandoned his old life. He abandoned his his confidence in his old life, his identity that he once had for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He, he wants to gain him. He wants to be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes from God that is found in Christ Jesus. And so here in verse 10 through 16, really Paul is just continuing his thought in regards to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. He continues to express his desire for Christ. His desire to experience the fullness of Jesus. Specifically here by participating and sharing in Christ's life. Now, we looked at several weeks ago, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And how Paul holds them up as examples to be followed. But I think here in Philippians 3, Paul's doing the same thing with his own life. He's using his own life as an example of what the priority of the Christian should be. What is it that the Christian should be committed to, pursuing, aiming for, giving their life to? Paul here in verses 10 through 16 reveals to us what the Christian's life is all about. So the first thing I want us to see here is that the Christian longs for the fullness of Christ. He longs for the fullness of Christ. Look at verses 10 and 11, that I may know him, 
and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now there are several things that Paul lists here. First, he simply states once again that he wants to know him. Paul already knows him, but he wants to know him more, not just intellectually, but experientially. Paul wants a living, dynamic relationship with Jesus. See, at at the foundation of Paul's faith wasn't duty, but intimacy. It wasn't just that he wanted to obey Christ, it's that he wanted to know Christ. He wanted to experience him. He wanted to experience union and communion with him. Intimacy with Jesus, his Savior, that's what he was committed to. That was his desire. Secondly, he not only says he wants to know him, but he also wants to know the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. Now, I want to be clear, Paul... Paul's not power-hungry when he says this. He's he's not wanting some kind of power so that he can somehow lord it over people. What he's speaking of here is that he, he wants to walk, live in resurrection power in order that he would live a life worthy of Jesus. The power of Christ's resurrection is the power that saves the Christian. The power of the resurrection is the power that saved you. In Ephesians 2, Paul uses resurrection language to describe our salvation. We were once dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, in his mercy, he made us alive. So the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that raised you to new life. The power of the resurrection is the same power that sustains you as a Christian. It's the same power that empowers you to live the Christian life, to live for Jesus. Throughout the scriptures, we we clearly see that this power is the power of the Spirit working in your life. And so Paul's desire is to know this power, to know the power of his resurrection. For knowing this power He will not only be able to walk in resurrection life, but he will also experience more of Jesus because, as Paul writes here, it's his resurrection power. It's Christ's resurrection power. Now, I have a feeling that most of us tend to think, well, why don't I feel or sense this resurrection power? Why don't I know this resurrection power experientially? But you probably do more than you realize. For example, I think every time you forgive a brother or a sister who has wronged you, that's resurrection power at work in your life. Every time you sacrificially give of your resources, that's resurrection power in your life. Every time you overcome temptation, that's resurrection power at work in your life. Every time you sin, but then you humbly repent and confess your sins to God and and to a brother or a sister, that is resurrection power at work in your life. Every time you pray in the Spirit, that's resurrection power at work in your life. 
Every time you share your faith, that's resurrection power in your life. Every time you overlook an offense, that's resurrection power in your life. Whether you're serving others, that's resurrection power in your life. You see, we often tend to think that those things are just done naturally by us. But that is the power of God at work in your life. That is resurrection power at work. And Paul says here, he he not only wants to know Christ, but he also wants to know the power of his resurrection. The third thing he says, which might surprise you, is that he wants to share his sufferings. He wants to share his sufferings. The idea here, I actually think, is a a better translation with what what Bev read for us this morning, is this idea of participating or fellowshipping in Christ's sufferings. Paul knows who his Savior is. He's the suffering servant. And in his desire to know Christ, a key element to that is the sufferings of Jesus. So Paul's desire to know Christ would would naturally lead him to want to share in his sufferings. We already saw in chapter 1, verse 29, that Paul already tells us that it's been granted to us to suffer for the sake of Christ. It's been given to us as a gift to suffer for Jesus. In Acts 14, 22, Paul uh, returns to Asia Minor And we're told what he says to the believers there. And this is what he says. He was encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we might enter the kingdom of God. No, no, we must enter the kingdom of God. Romans 8, 17 tells us that a prerequisite to being glorified with Christ is that we suffer with him. You see, when you embraced Christ, when you surrendered yourself to him as Lord, not only did you become a beneficiary of his sufferings, but also a sharer in his sufferings. Here's the reality. You can have a meaningful, intimate relationship with someone without any form of suffering involved in it, whether it be your spouse or a good friend. You can have meaningful relationships without suffering. But if you want true, deep, meaningful intimacy and fellowship, suffering is a requirement. You you want true commitment and communion with your spouse, Walk with them through suffering. You want a deep, meaningful friendship. Walk with them through suffering. It's often in the midst of suffering where you experience the deepest forms of commitment and understanding and intimacy with another human being. And true knowledge of Christ, true intimacy with Christ, true fellowship with Christ can't happen apart from suffering. And this is why Paul longs to share in Christ's sufferings. Because he wants to know him. He wants to know him. His desire is to know more and more of Jesus. And that entails sharing in the sufferings of Christ. 
Is your desire to know Christ that strong? So Paul wants to know him and the power of his resurrection. He wants to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Fourthly, he wants to become like him in his death. Literally, being conformed to his death. The idea here is Paul is is being conformed to Christ's death by the transforming activity of God, which is an ongoing process. So God is transforming Paul, conforming him to the likeness of Christ's death. He's not speaking here of martyrdom, but rather the ongoing process of dying to self, becoming like Christ. Christ died to self in order to redeem you and I. He's calling himself, he's pursuing the idea really of taking up one's cross and following Jesus. I want to know him in such a way that I become like him in his very death. The the more I die, the more I become like him. That's what Paul's saying. He wants to die on a daily basis more and more to himself that he would become more and more like Christ. So he wants to know him. He wants to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to share in his sufferings. He wants to become him like, in his, in him like him in his death. And fifthly, that by any means possible, he may attain the resurrection from the dead. That by any means possible, he may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now this is a startling statement by Paul. Because it's actually very difficult to read this statement. It's challenging for us. It challenges our theology. Paul seems in this statement to have a level of uncertainty. A level of self-doubt in regards to him obtaining the resurrection from the dead. He actually has self-doubt that he will obtain the resurrection from the dead. How, How do we reconcile This with his words in chapter 1, verse 6, that I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will see it unto completion. How do we reconcile this with Paul's theology throughout the scriptures that informs us that that those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, he will glorify? As he writes in, in Romans 8, that those whom he foreknew, those whom he predestined, those whom he called, those whom he justified, he will what? He will glorify. See, Paul's theology and the scripture as a whole teaches us the security of God's children. Those who have truly been born of the Spirit will be kept by God for the day of glorification. So how can Paul have this level of uncertainty or self-doubt in regards to himself obtaining the resurrection from the dead? Paul's understanding of internal security doesn't negate healthy self-examination. We often will hear terms like once saved, always saved. And, And I understand that statement and I believe it to be true, but I actually don't like the statement. Because I don't think it takes seriously the warnings in Scripture about falling away. Paul understood this. 
You see, on the one hand, I believe in the security of my salvation. I believe that God's going to complete the work in me. But on the other hand, I also believe that because of my sinful heart, I am capable in myself of abandoning the faith. Not because God has failed, but because I was not who I truly claimed to be. Even Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, he speaks of his fear of being disqualified. See, Paul, this sounds strange, he has a healthy uncertainty in himself. He has a healthy uncertainty about his own perseverance. He believes that Christ will complete his work, but he knows what his own heart is capable of. You see, your your assurance of salvation, your security of salvation should never neglect texts like work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12, or examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13.5. That's Paul writing to Christians. You are to examine yourself to see that you are right now currently walking in in the faith. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. 2 Peter 1, 10 to 11. See, many Christians think that their, their understanding of the security of the believer is that, well, I, I repented of my sins and I believed in Jesus Christ and therefore I'm good. No, friends. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you must persevere to the end to be saved. And of course, God is the one who will preserve you and enable you to persevere to the end. But if your security of salvation leads you to be indifferent to whether or not you are walking rightly before the Lord, that is not a proper understanding of the security of salvation. Security of salvation should never lead to a neglect of self-examination. And so Paul wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He wants to share in his sufferings. He wants to become like him in his death, that by any means he may attain the resurrection from the dead. That which will, of course, happen on the last day when Christ returns and we're given new, resurrected, glorious bodies made like his glorious body. This is Paul's desire. He longs for the fullness of Christ. And he's an example of what every Christian should long for. To know Christ was the passion of his life. His ultimate desire, day in and day out, this is what he longed for, to know the fullness of Christ. Is this your longing? Does your life reflect this kind of passion and desire? Is this your pursuit? The Christian longs for the fullness of Christ. Secondly, the Christian has a future aim. The Christian has a future aim. See, though Paul has this desire to know Christ and to obtain the resurrection, in verse 12, he acknowledges that he hasn't actually obtained it yet. So so look at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this 
or I'm already perfect, right? So here's my desire, but I'm acknowledging before you that I haven't actually obtained this and I haven't actually been made perfect yet. Now, the this in that sentence, right? Not that I've already obtained this, is most likely referring to the resurrection from the dead based upon the fact that he admits to not being perfect. Paul knows that perfection or the completion of our lives is tied to the resurrection. And so he admits that though this is his desire, in his present state, however, it's not true of him. So so Paul has this desire to know Christ and obtain the resurrection, but it's not a reality yet. It's not true of him yet. So what does he do? Well, verse 12 tells us, but I press on to make it my own. I press on to make it my own. In other words, he doesn't just desire it, but he acts upon his desire. He doesn't just desire to know Christ, he acts upon the pursuit of knowing Christ. He presses on to take possession of it. Now this verb here, press on, right? He says, I press on. It's actually the same word in verse 6 in regards to his zeal in persecuting the church. In other words, Paul's saying this, with the same zeal, with the same intensity and passion and vigilance that I persecuted the church, I now zealously pursue Christ and the resurrection from the dead. I zealously pursue it that one day I'll obtain it. That zeal that that consumed me to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, that that zeal now consumes, consumes me to press on to know Christ. Now, the remaining clause in verse 12 tells us the reason or the motivating factor for why Paul zealously pursues Christ and the resurrection. Look what it says. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul, in these few words, has given us the gospel, right? Christ Jesus has made me his own. In the original, the language is even stronger. Because Christ Jesus has seized me. He's laid hold of my life. He's captured me. That's the idea that Paul's saying here. He's captured me like a military commander. But he hasn't captured me by violence but by his grace and his love. This was Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. Jesus didn't reason with Paul. He didn't try to convince Paul to follow him. He seized Paul and said, you're mine. And I'm going to raise you up to spread my gospel to the nations. And friends, if if you're a follower of Christ, it's because you've been seized. It's because you've been seized by Jesus. You've been captured by Christ. He not only purchased your salvation by dying for your sins, but he came after you. He seized you. He chased after you by his grace. He has made you his own. He has taken hold of you. And this is what motivates, drives Paul in his zealous pursuit 
of Jesus Christ. He presses on to lay hold of Christ because Christ has laid hold of him. Now, notice the gospel order in this sentence. Paul doesn't say, I press on to seize Christ that he might seize me. No, no, he doesn't say that. He says, I press on to seize Christ because he's already seized me. Grace precedes Paul's effort. He's not fighting for Christ's acceptance, but rather he's responding to Christ's acceptance. It's Christ's embrace of him that motivates him to press on in embracing Jesus Christ in his pursuit of knowing him. And this truth, Christ laying hold of him, moved Paul in such a way that it forever changed his aim and pursuit in life. What about you? How do those words affect you? Because Christ has made me his own. How do those words motivate you? Do they move you in such a way that you zealously press on to lay hold of him in your life? In verse 13, Paul reiterates the same idea, but he gives further explanation to his future aim. So look look at verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So that reminds you again of verse 12, right? Not that I've already obtained this or already made perfect. So he's acknowledging once again that that I haven't made it my own. It's not true of me yet, right? But one thing I do, one thing, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So there's one thing Paul does. But there's three parts to this one thing. First, he says, I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting what lies behind. Paul's not saying he's trying to have his past erased from his memory. But rather, he's no longer wanting his past to control him or define him. Now, most of us think about this kind of thing in regards to things that we're ashamed of. right? We're, we're forgetting what, what lies behind, the, the things, the sins, the things that we've committed, the things that we wish no one ever found out. We want to forget those things in light of what Christ has done for us. And, and in one sense, rightly so, we're, we're new creatures, The old has passed away, the new has come. I'm no longer defined by my sinful past, and you, as a follower of Christ, are no longer defined by your sinful past. But in the context, that's actually not Paul's focus. He's not focused on his forgetting his past failures, but rather, he's focused on forgetting his past accomplishments and achievements. In other words... All that he once placed his confidence in value in, he's saying, I'm forgetting that. I'm no longer placing my confidence in those things. You see, the gospel hasn't only freed us 
from being slaves to our past failures, but it's also freed us from finding our worth in our past achievements. Whether they're your career achievements, your school achievements, your material achievements, your family achievements, your spiritual achievements, whatever they are, the gospel empowers you to be freed from finding your identity in those things. So Paul's saying, listen, I'm no longer looking at my past and finding my confidence, my identity there, the things that I've accomplished. I'm forgetting what lies behind. Why? For what purpose? Well, as he says, secondly, here, I'm focused on the future. I'm focused on the future. As he says, I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. This is why I said the Christian has a future aim. A future aim. Paul's saying that there's something that, that lays ahead of me And I'm straining forward to what that something is. Now that word straining, I'm I'm straining, has the idea of exerting oneself to the uttermost. Exerting oneself to the uttermost. The, the, The imagery here that Paul's using is that of a sprinter. You're running the 100 meters, or let's say the 400 meters, and you're coming around the bend, and you have the last 100 meters left, and you're straining to get to the finish line. But your eyes are fixed on the finish line. You're, you're forgetting what lies behind, and you're straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, if any of you have ever done track and field, the first thing that you learn as a track runner is never to look back when you're running. It's the first thing. I've learned my lesson in that. You never look back. The reason is the minute you look back, you throw off your rhythm as a runner. And so there are countless times where you'll see someone who looks back and out of nowhere, the person who was behind them is able to catch them because they've thrown off their rhythm in their run. And this is the picture Paul has here. Stop looking back Keep your eyes fixed on the finish line and run, strain, exert yourself to that finish line. Don't focus on what's behind you. Focus on what lies ahead. See, do you see your life as a race? Do you see your life as I have a finish line and my whole objective in life, my whole aim, my whole pursuit in life is to see that finish line and to pursue it with my whole being? That's Paul's mindset. Are you exerting yourself in such a way that your aim is to make it to the finish line? Not halfway, but all the way to the finish line. So this one thing that Paul does entails forgetting the past, straining forward to what lies ahead, and thirdly, verse 14, which is the main thrust of his point, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, the finish line. Now notice he uses the same language that he used in verse 12, right? I press on. I press on. I zealously pursue this goal. So he's pursuing this goal, and he defines what the goal is, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
What does that mean? Well, the upward call of God is just simply another way of saying a heavenly calling. It's a calling from heaven. We've been called from heaven. What's the prize that that Paul is zealously pursuing? Well, in the context, it seems to be the, the resurrection of the dead in which he will not only be made like Christ, but he will have Christ in his fullness. That's the goal. That's the prize. He will finally, in all of his fullness, lay hold of Jesus Christ. This is the one thing Paul does. This is his future aim. And here he sets forth for all Christians what our future aim is. In your living, does this future heavenly calling dictate your life? Does it control your life? Does it control how you work as an employee in whatever God has you in? Does it control your life in how you think about your family, how you relate to your family, how you raise your family? How about your friends? Does this one aim in life Pursuing Christ and and reaching the finish line, the resurrection of the dead, does it impact how you relate to your friends? Or how about how you use your money? Or how you use your sexuality? Or how you use your time that God has given you, which actually isn't your time, it's God's time. See, Paul's committed to one thing, and that one thing dictates his entire living. So one, the Christian longs for the fullness of Christ. Two, the Christian has a future aim. And three, we see the Christian's sign of maturity. The Christian's sign of maturity. Look at verses 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, it's the mature who realize that no matter how long you've been running this race, the race isn't over. There's a race to be run, there's progress to be made, whether you're 70 and you've been a Christian for 30 years or whether you're 21 and you've been a Christian for three years, your goal and aim hasn't changed. And Paul says here, if you think otherwise, he's confident that God is going to correct your thinking. He believes that the Holy Spirit will correct your thinking in this area of your life. I know older Christians who have come to a place in their life where they think they know it all now. They don't need, they don't need anything else. They, they know it all. They, they've walked with Jesus for 30 years of life. And they've stopped running the race. And for those of us who are older here this morning, I want to encourage you as a young person who has a long way to go, don't stop running. Don't stop running. As long as God gives you health Don't stop running and pursuing Jesus with your whole heart and mind and soul. And if you're younger here, keep on running as well. 
you have a long way to go. If it's a 400-meter race, you're at 20 meters. I don't know what the math is of 380 left to go. Is that right? That's right, yeah, okay. <laughs> so Paul's confident that, that God is actually going to correct your thinking if that's, if that's the way you think. And of course, he adds this final exhortation, which is tied to it, that we'd simply keep in step with what we've attained. We've attained something. We've attained Christ. We've attained salvation. And Paul's saying, you have an obligation as a Christian, a responsibility to keep in step with it. To keep in step with it. You see, the mature Christian is the one who understands that there's never a moment where you can let up on the gas pedal. As long as you're breathing, you have a single focused pursuit. And by your life, would you conclude that you are a mature Christian then? By your life, would you conclude that you're a mature Christian? This was Paul's single-minded ambition and goal, the overwhelming passion of his life to know and lay hold of the one who died for him. And this morning, I simply ask you this, what are you living for? What drives you when you awake in the morning? Maybe you're here this morning and, and you love coming to church. You love the fellowship. You love the people here. But Jesus Christ isn't your single focused pursuit of life. Maybe you're, you're enjoying the company, but you actually don't love Jesus and you're not committed to him. And here's the reality I want to say to you is that everyone lives for something. Everyone lives for something. You're living for ultimately self, maybe, maybe leaving a legacy. Maybe you're living for material wealth or, or pleasure or comfort or, or, or raising a good family. All those things are not necessarily bad in of themselves, but they become destructive when they become everything. When they become your ultimate pursuit in life, those things will condemn you. They will damn you. Why not give your life in the pursuit of knowing Jesus, who is far superior, far more supreme than anything that you could ever possibly pursue in this life? It's what you were actually made for. And it's the only thing that will ever truly satisfy your soul, knowing Jesus Christ and pursuing him for the rest of your life. Will you not embrace the one who, as Paul says, laid hold of him? Come to him and give your life fully to pursuing Christ. And for those of you who are believers, I hope for each of us that people will one day say of you and I, maybe it will be written on our tombstones, that he or she lived and died running after Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we simply ask that you by your spirit would help this to be true of us that our desire would be to know Christ above all of the things that our aim in life, that we would press on, that we would strain 
to know him more and to obtain the resurrection of the dead. And that we would never, we would never stop running the race that you have laid out for us. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.